This top. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, bringing you everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports on research into the latest potential new treatments and insights into the causes of mental illness. Along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues, as well as trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Thank you very much again for tuning into this podcast. And this was recorded for airing on July 1st, 2015. So looking forward to a happy and safe July 4th weekend. Uh, hopefully all of you will have. And uh, I myself have decided that since I'm going to take some time off, there will not be a new show for the uh, July 8th, 7 p.m. time slot. So the podcast will skip from July 1st to July 15th on July the 8th. America's Web Radio will play an archived edition of Psychiatry Today. Hope you enjoy whatever they decide to play. I uh, will not have control over that. It will be a recent show owing to the continuity of the uh, sponsor's ads. Um, and as uh, far as all of yourselves are concerned, I hope you have a happy, fun, safe Fourth of July as we remember this country's birthday. Getting right to what I want to talk to you about on tonight's podcast, I realized that there's four new antidepressants on the market over the past couple of years. And I thought to myself, you know, I have not spent any time going over these medications on the podcast. And I thought, well, you know, it's something I'd like to do because... With new medications, there may be some of you who are listening to this whose doctor has prescribed them for you, or you may have heard of them or researched them yourself. So I decided that I would like to give you some information, some really honest information that you might not be able to get elsewhere uh, and rest assured that if you decide you want more detailed information, uh, I could also point you in the right direction for that. Uh, so let's start with that then, with our review and update on new antidepressants. First of all, there's Vibrid. Now, Vibrid's actually been out a couple of years or more, um, but it's... Still, that's relatively new when it comes to antidepressants, and there are still many people who haven't heard of it. Um, <clears throat> Vibrid's chemical name is Velazidone. It's made by, <clears throat> well, what 
used to be called Forest Pharmaceuticals and then was called Actavis and now it's called Allergan through a series of acquisitions. Now, <clears throat> Vibrid at the moment is only FDA approved for the treatment of depression. But I can tell you that they have been working on trying to get it approved for at least one anxiety disorder. Um, that may or may not happen by the end of this year. We'll have to wait and see. If it does happen, uh, I'll surely let you know. Now, what is Vibrate and how does it work? Well, some of you no doubt have heard the term SSRIs. SSRI is an acronym that stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. Most, but not all, modern antidepressants that we use nowadays, uh, pretty much everything since 1988, is an SSRI, meaning that its mechanism of action in the brain is that it selectively blocks the reuptake of serotonin. Now, if you look at brain cells in the serotonin pathways in the brain, serotonin is released from the end of one brain cell and it jumps across this tiny gap called the synapse to communicate with the next brain cell. And brain cells all have a reuptake pump at the end of their cell which recycles and takes up again, hence reuptake, the serotonin left over in the synapse uh, from whenever amount of serotonin winds up communicating with the next cell. And by blocking this pump, there's more serotonin available in the synapse to communicate with the next brain cell, which is thought to be the mechanism of how the medicines that block the reuptake pump relieve the symptoms of depression. Believe me, there's a lot more to it than that. That is a gross oversimplification. Uh, but for better or for worse, that's the main thing that most of these antidepressants do. Now, Vibrid does that and does it quite potently. Um, in fact, Vibrid in that regard is many times more potent than even Prozac, which was the first of the new generation antidepressants, came out in, like I said, 1987, 1988, and uh, still to this day could be considered the gold standard. But Vibrid also has a second mechanism of action that literally none of the SSRIs have. Uh, there are other receptors for serotonin at the beginning of a brain cell and also on the body of the brain cell in, begin, in between rather the, the beginning and the end of the cell. And these are serotonin 1A receptors. Uh, well, so if so, Vibras acts as a partial agonist at these receptors, and what that means is it enhances the release of serotonin more so than just blocking the reuptake pump. Now, why is that a big deal, or is it a big deal at all? Well, yes, actually, it is a big deal. Um, many years ago, in fact, decades ago or so, uh, scientists who were trying to work on decreasing the delay of onset of action of antidepressants, in other words, you start taking an antidepressant, you don't start feeling 
happier right away. It takes at least 10 days, if not two weeks, and sometimes longer. So in, a, uh, in an effort to make people start feeling better faster, researchers hit upon the idea of giving them a medication called Pindalol, which is normally only for treating high blood pressure, to get the whole process jump-started. Well, what does Pindalol do besides help with blood pressure and block uh, beta receptors, hence being called a beta blocker? It has the same action on serotonin 1A receptors that Vibrid has. So is it possible then that Vibrid could jumpstart the whole process and help people feel better faster? Well, that very well may be, but it's like any other antidepressant. There are some people who feel better fairly quickly and feel very well and don't have side effects. There are other people who take much longer to start feeling well. There are other people who don't respond to vibrate and don't feel well with it at all. And there are people who have uncomfortable side effects to vibrate and can't stay on it. But that's really no different than any other medication. Uh, <clears throat> now, how do you take Vibrid? Typically, the first week is 10 milligrams, then after that, it's 20 milligrams. Now, originally, when Vibrid first came out, they were saying after that week of 10 and week of 20 milligrams, by the third week, boom, you got to go right to 40 milligrams because 10 milligrams is not enough to do anything. And 20, while it may give some people some relief, is certainly not a therapeutic dose for depression. So 40 was considered the minimum therapeutic dose for depression. That changed just this year to where the FDA approved 20 milligrams as a therapeutic dose. Uh, so what happened was a lot of people were feeling pretty good at 20, didn't feel like they needed more, and if they tried to take 40, they just got uncomfortable with side effects. So this led to confirming uh, by doing more studies that 20 milligrams was an effective enough dose. Now, what are the most common side effects of Vibrid? Well, you might very well expect if you're taking this medicine, despite the gradual start of 10 then 20 milligrams, to be pretty darn uncomfortable that first week to 10 days. Um, it's quite notorious for causing nausea and or diarrhea, as well as insomnia. Uh, the good news is, on average, you're only going to have to put up with those side effects for the first 5 to 10 days. And after that, it's over and done with. And a little more after that, and that's when you start to feel better. So... It may very well be worth it putting up with this, the discomfort from the side effects in the short term. Uh, and the payoff is that you're going to feel better not long after they subside. Now, there's one more catch about Vibrid. It's not really a side effect, but owing to how it's absorbed and metabolized in the body, you have to have eaten before you take it. And... Maybe there are some of you listening out there who were prescribed Vibrid by their doctor and weren't told this. So this is very, very important information for you to have. And if someone 
you know is on vibrate and uh, hasn't been told this, please share this with them. Um, if you don't take vibrate after you've eaten a meal of at least 350 calories, your body will only absorb half of your dose. Again, you have to eat first, then take the medication. The meal has to be at least 350 calories, and then your body will fully absorb the dose. So, for example, if you took 40 milligrams and you didn't eat before you took it, your body might only absorb 20. If you took 20, it would only absorb 10, etc. So there you have it about Vibrate. More information, go to Vibrate.com. All right, well, we're going to take our first commercial break. We'll have more antidepressant updates for you. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. You know, I just realized, I think in the earlier mis- the uh, earlier segment, I may have misspoke about the number of new antidepressants on the market since I did a thorough review of all of them with you, which was quite some time ago. I think I might have said four. There are, in fact, only three. Perhaps it was wishful thinking on my part 
because as many antidepressants as we have, which is more than a dozen, we still need more and better options because on a good day we get at most two-thirds of people feeling well for some of the time and uh, even then some of those people have to put up a lot of side effects to feel well and the reality is that all these medicines that we have including the new ones that I'm talking to you about tonight really don't fix the problem that's underlying depression we've hit upon the mechanism of action of these medicines that by good luck alleviate the symptoms but they're not fixing the underlying problem um, in any case the next new medication that I want to tell you about is called Fetsima now um, Fetsima has a, a chemical name Levomilnasopran uh, extended release and it is also made by Allergan and if it seems odd that a company would be promoting two new antidepressants at once it is uh, but nonetheless for various different reasons um, purchasing drugs that other companies were unsuccessful in developing in the past uh, this company found itself with more than one viable antidepressant in their portfolio and therefore they are simultaneously promoting them now in the earlier segment of the show we talked about Vibrid which exclusively works on the serotonin pathway both blocking the serotonin reuptake pump and also working at a different serotonin receptor but Fetsima is a very very different mechanism of action um, it's in a completely different class of antidepressants so strictly speaking they don't compete with each other in that sense uh, only insofar as they are both for the treatment of depression Fetsima is only approved for the treatment of depression at this time it's unclear whether there will be any FDA approval for any anxiety disorder um, there may very well not be uh, but in any case it is a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor or SNRI for short so not only blocks the reuptake pump for the serotonin cells at the synapse it does the same thing at norepinephrine synapses um, leaving more norepinephrine available in the synapse to communicate with the next brain cell now there are other SNRIs most of which you're probably familiar with uh, <clears throat> the first one that came on the market was Effexor and <clears throat> subsequent to uh, the Effexor when Effexor went generic the company who made Effexor came out with Pristique now they're really very much the same thing your body takes Effexor and metabolizes it and breaks it down into a second chemical which is Pristique Effexor is Venlafaxine and then Pristique is Desvenlafaxine so really Pristique is just the main metabolic byproduct of Effexor and while it's 
patented and sold as a separate medication, they're uh, essentially quite the same thing. The first uh, major advance in terms of SNRIs was Cymbalta, uh, because whereas Effexor works very strongly on serotonin, but its action on norepinephrine is fairly weak, Cymbalta was thought to be more balanced between working on these two neurotransmitters or brain hormones, brain regu uh, mood regulating hormones, if you will. Turns out that while Cymbalta is somewhat more balanced between those two than Effexor, it still is stronger in terms of its action on serotonin as opposed to its action on norepinephrine. The other thing that was fairly innovative about Cymbalta was that it wasn't only approved for the treatment of depression and then later generalized anxiety disorder, it was also approved for the treatment of, at first, diabetic peripheral neuropathy pain, and then later on, a whole slew of other pain indications, osteoarthritis pain, uh, lower back pain. So you had, uh, for the first time, an antidepressant saying, hey, you know, this medication will help depression and pain, or just treat pain alone, absent any depression. Oh, fibromyalgia pain was another type of pain that Cymbalta later became approved for. So then a couple of years ago, here comes Fetsima. Now, just as Pristique is more or less another version of Effexor, Fetsima also had an earlier cousin on the scene. Savella, which is Milnasopran, is also an SNRI, and this has been out for many, many years in Europe and elsewhere, and in the United States for several years or so, but only FDA approved to treat fibromyalgia. Um, I guess they thought, well, you know, there are so many antidepressants on the market and it's going to be really hard to get any market share selling this for depression. Plus the same company was promoting Lexapro at the time and they knew they had Vibrid coming out. Um, yes, we're talking about Allergan. So they said, well, let's, uh, let's try to get some of the business that Cymbalt is going after with these um, fibromyalgia patients. But Cervelo never took off. It's very difficult to take. You have to take it twice a day. Um, people don't like the inconvenience and forget uh, one or the other dose, usually the evening one. And um, quite frankly, the fibromyalgia patient market is not a big one, and the effect of it didn't exactly bowl people over. So if you take milnasopran and you just isolate the most active ingredient in it, the uh, left-handed isomer for those of you chemists out there, what you've got is levomilnasopran, and then you put that into an extended-release capsule, and you've got Fetsima. So how does Fetsima differ from the other major SNRIs, the Effexor, Prestique, um, and Cymbalta. Well, Etzema is very weak in terms of its serotonin action and much stronger in terms of its norepinephrine action. 
Now, what does all that mean and what implications does that have for people who take it? Well, if people have had either a lack of benefit from medicines that were just SSRIs or maybe Effexor, which is much stronger, serotonin, much weaker, norepinephrine, kind of the opposite profile of Fedsema, um, or people have had intolerable side effects from medicines that work strongly on the serotonin pathways like the SSRIs or Effexor and Pristique, then Fedsema might be a better choice for these folks because its action on serotonin is fairly weak. Uh, so it's another option for depression uh, for people who have tried other antidepressants and not had good luck with them for one reason or another. Now, <clears throat> it's pretty easy to figure out what to take. There's a little starter kit that you take a 20 milligram capsule for two days, and then the rest of that first week and beyond, you take a 40 milligram capsule. Now, if you're on 40 for as little as a couple of weeks and not feeling better enough, you can go right to 80. And similarly, from 80, you can go to 120. Now, as far as side effects, nausea is the most common one. Um, and uh, again, typically that peaks within the first week to 10 days, and then it goes away. Now, since it's pretty potent in terms of its action on norepinephrine, uh, Especially on the higher doses, there is a risk of things like slight elevations in heart rate or blood pressure. So that's something worth monitoring, especially if the patient happens to have a history of problems with those uh, areas with elevated heart rate or blood pressure. But otherwise, its side effect profile is pretty good. You're not really going to see weight gain has very little in the way of sexual side effects. Those are big-time nuisances with most antidepressants. And by the way, although uh, I've seen it happen in some patients, Vibrid, which we talked about in the earlier segment, I would have to say it has less of a tendency to cause both the weight gain and the sexual side effects than other antidepressants. But Fedsema being fairly weak on serotonin, which is responsible for those two types of side effects, um, is pretty clean where those issues are concerned. So again, it might be another type of patient for whom Fedsema would be good to try if they've had bad luck with gaining weight and having their antidepressant ruin their sex life on other things. This would definitely be worth a try. Now, since Vibrant's been around several years or so by now. It's covered by most insurance plans. Uh, FETSEMA has been more difficult. Um, a lot of insurance plans are not covering it. They're saying you have to try and fail older and cheaper medicines first, um, which really isn't right. If you and your doctor think this is best for you, it isn't right that the insurance company should interfere, but that's the way it goes. Um, Allergan, the company who make both Vibrant and Fetsema, have some deals that may help. Uh, there are vouchers that you can get from your doctor that are good for your first 30-day supply for free. And then after that, you can get copay cards that 
will discount how much your out-of-pocket cost is for each monthly prescription thereafter. Again, more information than what I gave you, you can go to Fetsima.com, both to learn about the drugs, the drug and its side effects, and also those payment assistant things. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. More mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay, going over all the latest mental health-related news tonight so far, giving you an update on the newer antidepressants, in case any of you have been prescribed them and want to know more about it or just want to know more in general for whatever reason, or maybe a loved one has been prescribed it. And again, just to better inform everybody about treatments for depression. Next up is the newest antidepressant of all, but even it's been out a little more than a year by now. It's called Brintelix. Brintelix, B-R-I-N-T-E-L-L-I-X. And... This drug comes to us from Lundbeck Pharmaceuticals, which is a Danish company. And uh, 
they have a long history of coming up with medicines for depression. Um, they had a tricyclic antidepressant um, back in the 70s, and they were the company who developed Celexa. It was marketed in the United States by a company called Forrest, who, as I told you before, is now called Allergan. And again, uh, Celexa uh, begat Lexapro. If you purify Celexa, you get Lexapro. Um, but this time, when this uh, Danish company decided they wanted to sell and market their antidepressant in the United States, they did not partner with Allergan, and they partnered with Takeda Pharmaceuticals, which is uh, a little odd because Takeda didn't have its own dedicated sales force that was familiar with psychiatry and psychiatrists, but still, um, Lundbeck didn't have any presence in the United States, so that's what they chose to do. <clears throat> now, uh, unlike most antidepressants, which are basically just sort of me-too drugs, uh, in other words, copying and trying to best uh, how the previous popular antidepressant worked, Brintelix was specifically developed and engineered with uh, trying to come up with something novel and much better. Uh, so the scientists at Lundbeck in Denmark really worked on this thing, and they come up with a medication that is rather unique. Uh, so let's start with, you know, so how does Brintelix treat depression, uh, what is its mechanism of action, and by the way, it's only FDA approved for depression, but I can tell you there's ample research to show that it does effectively treat symptoms of anxiety, so we'll wait and see if they ever get the, uh, if they ever submit data to the FDA to get it approved for uh, anxiety. But in any case, Brintelix unlike all the other antidepressants, really defies categorization because it has so many distinct mechanisms of action. And in fact, as such, it is called a multimodal medication because it works via so many different mechanisms. Now, it does block the reuptake pump on serotonin cells, in the brain. So it does have the same action as SSRIs. However, it does so many more and different things that SSRIs don't do and that SNRIs don't do that, again, it isn't called one and uh, because it has so many mechanisms called multimodal. Well, without getting too technical and going into too much details, it works at other types of serotonin subreceptors, um, 1A, 3, 1B, 1D, and serotonin 7. So it has mechanisms of action at multiple different types of serotonin receptors, not just blocking the reuptake pump. Now, what are the implications of 
working on all these different subtypes of antidepressants, three, the uh, 1A, 1B, and, and 7, and 1D. Well, uh, the 7 is responsible for one of the things that really stands out as being different about Rintelix. Um, <clears throat> you'll notice that in the name of the drug, is sort of the word intellect if you stretch it a little bit. That's not without accident. Uh, that's not by accident, rather. Because by working at serotonin type 7 receptors, Brintelix helps improve cognitive function, attention, thinking, concentration, perhaps even memory. And we know that depression degrades all these functions. So to have an antidepressant that particularly focuses on improving cognition, uh, not only by relieving symptoms of depression, but by a, a distinct mechanism of action in the brain that we know helps improve cognition, uh, that may be the one thing about Brintelix that makes it unique and distinct from other antidepressants. Now, <clears throat> the... Other mechanisms uh, certainly enhance the functioning of the drug by acting at all these other receptors. It essentially connects with other path pathways in the brain. So you're not only manipulating the levels of serotonin to help alleviate depression, it brings in other neurotransmitters, other brain-regulating hormones such as acetylcholine, norepinephrine, dopamine, and all these things help the overall aspect of treating depression and improving cognition. And for good measure, uh, the 1D action, the serotonin 1D receptor, is similar to that, what, uh, similar to how migraine medications work, the tryptans, uh, sumatryptan, which is Imitrex, and then all the other ones, uh, uh, Emerge, uh, Frova, Zomig, what have you, all the tryptans um, that people take when they feel a migraine headache coming on. Uh, so people who have depression and also suffer from migraines, there are legions of people with both of those problems, unfortunately, they might find taking Brintelix an advantage for that reason as well. Now, <clears throat> As far as how to take it, um, the lowest therapeutic dose is 10 milligrams. You can start at 5 to help smooth the way, but it doesn't really do anything at 5. All the doses, uh, all the lower dose studies, the ones at 5 and 10 milligrams, really didn't have much of an effect. But when people took at least 15, if not 20 milligrams, then the antidepressant effect itself was quite robust. Now, side effect wise, nausea is quite severe and for most people that goes away in a week or two, but um, in some people it persists and they can't take it. Now, I shouldn't say that everybody inevitably will be nauseous on the drug. In fact, that's well, nothing further from the truth can be said, but when people do experience side effects from it, uh, believe me, nausea is the most prominent one, and it can be pretty bad.
Other than that, it's surprisingly clean for all the things that it does and all the neurotransmitters that it manipulates the levels of. Um, like Fetsima, you don't see sexual dysfunction or weight gain. Um, so it's pretty interesting. Um, the novel group of mechanisms of action and uh, the fact that it was engineered to work the way it does, not just accidentally discovered. In other words, Lundbeck didn't say, oh, look, this thing does this, 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 and this. Let's test it out for depression and see if it works, see if we can sell it and make some money. Quite the contrary. They said, let's build a drug that does this and then this and then this and then this and see how well it works and see how its side effects are. So this thing was built from the ground up with um, everything that it does in mind, and uh, which really is, is quite unique. Instead of just saying, oh, well, you know, this last stand depressant did pretty well. Let's see if we can find something that works the same way and sell it and make some money. Um, now, you can take everything I said about getting insurance companies to pay for Fedsema being difficult before and magnify that by a factor of maybe, I don't know, five or ten times. Brintelix is newer, um, and uh, insurance companies are taking lots of occasions saying, no, nope, not going to pay for that. You have to try and fail something older and cheaper first. Um, but like Allergan, who give you um, copay cards uh, to help defray your cost for Pretzema and Vibrid, uh, Lundbeck and Takeda are doing the same thing with Brentelix. Um, I think it's actually well worth a try for people who, again, uh, like I said about Petsima, have had side effects on SSRIs or found SSRIs weren't helpful. But whereas Brentelix doesn't work on the norepinephrine pathway, and that's not the difference between it and the SSRIs, it has all these other different mechanisms of action which bring in all these other neurotransmitters to help enhance and balance the fact that it also works on the serotonin pathway. So it has all these advantages. And again, I think the two groups of people who especially might want to uh, have a trial of Brentelix or those who especially have a hard time with cognitive function as a manifestation of their depression uh, because of how it improves cognitive function and also uh, those people who ha have depression and migraine headaches. I should also say that while there's no age restriction for any of these medicines I'm telling you about, uh, it's nice to mention that Brentellis uh, in its clinical trials included people who were into their 80s. Uh, so even the elderly who struggle with depression and maybe have tried the older drugs and haven't had much success should consider a trial of Brentelix. All right, well, now you're up to date on all the latest medications for depression. Um, none of them are approved for anxiety, but if your problem is more anxiety than depression and you tried the others, they haven't worked. These new ones are still worth trying. When we come back, other mental health related news. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. 
But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Georgia author Doug Dahlgren. Join me Fridays at 11 a.m. for a new show here on America's Web Radio. We call it the Prologue. I'll be introducing you to other writers you may not have heard of yet. That's Fridays at 11 a.m. here on America's Web Radio. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on tonight's podcast, cyberbullying on social media has been linked to teen depression. Now, this is not a new issue, as you know. We've talked about this any number of times before, but uh, there's a new study. Um, it analyzed multiple studies of this online phenomenon. Victimization of young people online has received an increasing level of scrutiny, particularly after a series of high-profile suicides of teenagers who were reportedly bullied on various social networks. In 2013, for example, a spate of suicides was linked to to the social network Ask.fm, where users can ask each other questions anonymously. The deaths of teens who had been subject to abuse on the site prompted Ask.fm, which was acquired by Ask.com, last year to launch new safety efforts. Twitter, likewise, announced plans in April to filter out abusive tweets and suspend bullying users. Social media use is hugely common among teenagers, but the health effects of cyberbullying on social media sites is largely unknown. Regular Face-to-face bullying during the teen years may double the risk of depression in adulthood. 
and bullying's effects can be as bad or worse than child abuse. In this new review, researchers combed through studies on cyberbullying and social media, finding 36 studies that investigated the effects of cyberbullying on health in teens ages 12 to 18. Although the studies examined different health outcomes and sometimes defined cyberbullying differently, one finding stood out. There were consistent associations between exposure to cyberbullying and increased likelihood of depression. The studies covered a variety of social sites, but Facebook, as you might have guessed, was the most common. Between 89% and 97.5% of the teens who used social media had a Facebook account. That's an astounding level of participation. 17 of the 36 studies analyzed looked at how common cyberbullying was. And the researchers found that a median of 23% of teens reported being targeted. About 15% reported bullying someone online themselves. Two studies examined the prevalence of these so called bully victims, meaning teens who both bullied others and who were bullied themselves. Research on Offline bullying shows these kids to be the most at risk for mental health problems. One study found that 5.4% of teens were bully victims, while the other reported a prevalence of 11.2%. Despite the well publicized suicide cases linked to cyberbullying in news reports, researchers Did not find consistent links between being bullied and self harm across the studies, nor did they see a consistent link between cyberbullying and anxiety. Some studies found evidence for these links and others did not. However, the findings don't mean these links don't exist. The 36 studies used a variety of definitions. And health outcomes, and not enough work has been done to confirm or rule out connections between cyberbullying and anxiety or self harm. But cyberbullying and depression went hand in hand. This study, this, this review research rather, was published on June 22nd in the journal, Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics. Ten studies examined the link between social media victimization and depression, and all of them found a connection. Alone, these studies can't prove that the bullying caused the depression. It's possible that depressed teens are more likely to become targets of bullying than their healthier peers. However, one of the ten studies did follow the teens over time and found that the cyberbullying preceded the teens' depression, hinting at a causal relationship. The research also found that the more cyberbullying a teen experienced, 
the more severe his or her symptoms of depression. Alarmingly, teens typically suffered cyberbullying in silence. Kids really are hesitant to tell anyone when cyberbullying occurs. There seems to be a common fear that if they tell their parents, for example, they'll lose their internet access. Therefore, it's important for parents to respond carefully if their kids are being bullied online and to teach teens safe internet use rather than cutting off permission to use the web. Parents need to address that this is happening and that the internet and social media is here. It's an important part of their kids' lives but it needs to be a whole team approach. Now, it is such an important part of teens' lives that to try to cut that off, you may as well cut off their cell phones, assuming they have them, and also cut off just any and all communication, uh, because this is how teens communicate with each other. So if your response to their being cyberbullied is to just pull the plug, you're actually making matters worse, not better. Uh, <clears throat> it's also important to remember that some victims are also bullies, so while trying to address the fact that your child or your grandchild may be a victim of cyberbullying, it would be good to make sure they're not uh, in turn perpetrating this onto someone else. Uh, the appropriate measures to take uh, would be to contact the uh, provider. Uh, there are usually moderators who would prevent abuses. And uh, if, uh, if your child or grandchild is going to school with the uh, bully, then uh, the school authorities should be alerted to this uh, because even though it may not be happening during school or on school property, uh, schools now are taking um, the idea of bullying very seriously, um, even in the context of happening in social media outside the classroom or the school grounds. <clears throat> um, but the bottom line is it's something that parents and maybe grandparents too need to be aware of and keep the dialogue open with your team uh, so that you're able to help them when uh, and if this happens to them. Next, some scientific research looking at what may shed some light on the causes of suicide and a potential way to actually try to prevent it. Now, one American dies from suicide every 12.8 minutes. So it's the 10th leading cause of death. If we could better predict who's at risk for it, it might be possible to intervene. A new analysis of studies shows there are increasing levels of certain chemicals called cytokines in the body and in the brain that promote inflammation in those who are thinking of or attempted suicide, even when compared to patients being treated for the same disorders who are not suicidal. You've heard me talk about cytokines before. They are elevated in states of inflammation. Um, cytokines are involved in other problems, such as arthritis, 
atherosclerosis, and asthma. They're released under conditions of psychological stress, uh, triggered by the stress hormone cortisol, and they can cause inflammation in the brain, which contributes to depression. And the study suggests that suicide emerges in a context of greater activation of the immune system than typical stress of depression because of the cytokines. Researchers looked at 18 studies, and they looked at people with suicidal thinking, without, and then control subjects. And they found that people who were suicidal had higher levels of cytokines known as interleukin uh, beta, 1 beta, and interleukin 6. And they looked at that measured in both the blood and um, in the post-mortem brain because, you know, sadly these are people who suicided who were examined. So this is a growing body of evidence that immune system dysfunction, including inflammation, is involved in major psychiatric disorders in some individuals. So is it possible then that cytokine levels can help distinguish patients who are at risk for suicide versus those who weren't? And, you know, this is potentially a positive finding in that regard because they did find levels of these cytokines in the blood. You didn't have to just wait until the patient suicided and examined their brain. Now, the relationship between these elevated levels and suicide may not be specific. Um, so you can't necessarily say if it's elevated that, well, this person is going to commit suicide and it's going to happen this and such time. But, uh, you know, even though the goal of a specific test to see who's at risk and isn't is still distant, this, you know, identifying these markers is a positive step along the way. Hopefully, it'll help doctors predict long-term risk. And we also need to see if there's uh, a way to control inflammation and if that has a long-term protective effect. Um, but a lot more work needs to be done looking at these cytokine alterations and whether uh, preventing them or lowering them or ameliorating them somehow makes a difference. Inflammation affects every organ of the body, including the brain. Um, so looking at how inflammation affects the brain and increases the risk of suicide is a major potential advance in the treatment of depression and saving lives. Um, so as far as preventing suicide and help paving the way for future immune-based Therapeutic interventions, this is very important research, even though at the moment it's quite preliminary um, and uh, has not led to specific treatments or tests as of yet. Well, with that, I'm going to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you enjoyed the information that I brought to you and found it interesting and informative. I certainly enjoyed bringing it to you, and I hope that until we get together again in two weeks, again, no show next week, next new podcast, July uh, 15th. Hope till then you have a wonderful stress-free time. Good night. Thanks for listening. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.